It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Down to the round of eight. One purple replaces another as uh, Linfield uh, beat Mary Harden Baylor on Saturday afternoon. Uh, you know, throws uh, a whole wrench into the works, changes the map, does all sorts of things, and it gets uh, one of uh, the national semifinalists from the past two years out of the playoffs here in the second round. Uh, I'm Pat Coleman, joined by Keith McMillan. This is the Around the Nation podcast, where we run down things that happened around the nation in Division Three football. And for Linfield, something uh, pretty unique happened on Saturday, something that I think had escaped my notice up until, uh, up until it was pointed out on Saturday afternoon, and and that was the fact that Linfield had never won a Division Three playoff road game in its uh, in its history. They obviously they won a neutral game at Salem, uh, but they had lost all of the previous road games. And I guess I'd never quite picked up on that particular fact, Keith. Yeah, I don't think I had either. And Linfield to me had always been the the team was. The, the nationally significant team that was the most well-traveled. They played Rowan from New Jersey. They played Hampton, Sydney from Virginia. They they played um, at Wesley. They've played Mary Harden Baylor before. They played pretty much everybody along the way except Mountain Union. You know they've had games against St. Thomas and several games against Whitewater, uh, both at their place and uh, in Wisconsin. And and I I never noticed that either. You know that they had never had a uh, a, a a big road victory like they did on Saturday down in Texas and uh you know for that this season for Linfield wasn't quite like some of the past few seasons where we thought Linfield had a chance to get through to Salem they were a top five team they came in undefeated they, they weren't any of those things uh this season and so that's part of the reason why this game is even being played in the second round and in in one sense it's even it's just mind-boggling that Mary Harden Baylor you know a consensus top five team and probably top three on, on almost every ballot would, um, you know, is out of the playoffs after the second round. It's baffling. But um, for for Linfield at this point in the season, um, because they came into the, the postseason with a loss, I think it was very easy to assume that this wasn't quite quite a strong Linfield team. And then with uh, with Parker Moore um, being being killed, um, you know, just there's no way for anybody to know, and we wrote about this on the site this week, how that's going to affect the, the the group that that has to turn around and play football. You know, you're think you're thinking about life, and you're dealing with grief, and and you have school on top of all that, and then you gotta go play a football game, and that either can be you know the release, or the, or that could be something that you just don't have the the energy to to put effort into. And so for Linfield to to bounce back uh, after that, be Chapman, and then to go to Texas and play. A really outstanding game. You you listen to the the crew fans uh, talk after this game, and they say you know they were lucky that it was only thirty one twenty eight because Linfield played outstanding. And I I think that just this just upsets the apple cart in in this postseason. I had made the statement that I would be surprised if if the final four was anybody but Wesley Mount Union. Whitewater and Mary Harden Baylor, and now it's going to be. It, there's going to be at least one different team in there, and there may be more. Well, and I think that when you uh, when you mentioned earlier that 
uh, didn't necessarily uh, think about Linfield as a team that could make it to Salem. I think, you know, until the loss to Willamette, I think that at least that was something that had to be on people's minds. Yes, those four teams uh, that you mentioned, Keith, they're pretty set. Uh, they're set in a, at a lot of people's minds. They were playing that way, like they were, um, and they were, of course, seated to be the uh, national quarterfinalists. But as much as, uh, as as Linfield has certainly had some disappointing exits in the playoffs in in I wasn't going to say even recent years, in previous years, just in general, you still have to think of uh, Linfield until they watched that Willamette game as a team that could have done something like this. Well, and I think their their brand, so to speak, is well known. You know, them going to Mary Harden Baylor, uh, we all probably thought that was a game. I mean, you look at the triple take picks, for example, we thought that was going to be a close one. I don't think anybody thought Linfield being down a little bit meant that they were they were easy out in the in this postseason because that that's certainly not the case at all but i remember saying in previous years hey this linfield team could be the, could be the best team out there they're loaded they have all their defensive stars back their offense is good um you know i think at the, at that time they just needed a quarterback to develop and now this season was was sort of um, they were they were coming together they differently. They had a, a older cast of receivers, for example, and a sophomore quarterback. And now we see Sam Riddle's the real deal. Riddle's a guy who was offered a scholarship at the University of North Dakota, actually went off to preseason camp there, uh, decided he needed to come back home. And uh, again, uh, Linfield is the beneficiary of someone coming back to play at, in uh, in the home state of Oregon, much like a lot of, uh, of, of star D3 players are, whether it's someone who considered Division One, someone who actually played a couple of seasons at Division One or at a scholarship level, or someone who did like Sam Riddle did, accepted a scholarship, went off and then uh, changed his mind fairly quickly. There's a lot of people who realize Division Three is a, a great place to be, and they come back here. It just may take them a little longer. Sure, a couple of, of big stars whose teams are still alive: um, Mark Myers from uh, from John Carroll, uh, Jay Kumro from uh, from Wisconsin Whitewater. Those guys all started out at, uh, at scholarship level football or ended up back in D3, but. Even though you may have one or two stars who who transfer in, you know the the best teams in Division Three are built with with numbers. In all honesty, they they just you just recruit and recruit and recruit good players, and then in camp, um, let them sort themselves out. Let them over the course of one or two or three seasons work their way into roles, and then you have uh, have these these well tested teams. And one of the reasons we see frequently the same teams in the postseason is because those extra weeks of games and, and practice really do help uh, help kids develop when you have a very limited time outside of the season to work on football. And it does, uh, I think also when uh, when programs are successful year after year, they become magnets for those uh, for those players who might want to come back and 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 play in Division three or play and have uh, a social life or be part of more of the campus community than someone uh, who plays at a scholarship level might be able to do so. So Linfield advances. We're going to talk about each of the eight games that were played Saturday. We'll talk about the four games that are coming up in the national quarterfinals. But, uh, you know, Linfield now has to uh, get back in an airplane fly all the way across the country to play Widener, but you know they're uh, they're playing with house money at this point. They've uh, they've already exceeded uh, most people's expectations. Uh, they've knocked off one of Division Three's big dogs, and you know I I, I the uh, we already had kind of an interesting range of expectations for them, and now it's completely different. They're in a they're in a position where they're definitely favored this upcoming week. I would say. 
contrast that with the year that they lost at home to to uh, Wisconsin Oshkosh, uh, where you you ex- expect Linfield to go through in that that game, even though as good as Oshkosh was that season, that that loss was a little bit of a of a, of a stunner. Um, last season, they go out in the quarterfinals in a pretty good game against Whitewater, a game where they they led for a portion of that game. Uh, you can go back in years before that, uh, have an overtime game against St. Thomas where they, they lost and, and went out of the playoffs then. Those years, I think they carried those expectations. And this year, with it being um, – with them having a loss and with the, the, the way things transpired over the past two weeks, just, just changing the whole um, prism of, of what's important. Right now, for for Linfield football, you know the football. The 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 farther they play, the longer they get to be together. It's all just a bonus and it's gravy. And to be honest, I don't think going on the road is is such a bad idea. Sometimes we over um, think the fact that oh well, you got to get on a plane and and um, fly cross country. Well, well, Linfield, it's not their first time on a plane. You know, it may be a big deal if you're, if you're a team from New York state that plays all your opponents in New York state, for, for example, but, or if, you know, you're in the NJAC or in, in Texas and everyone, that's not a good example, but Wisconsin, everyone is in driving distance. Well, you know, this is a team that's used to flying. And I think sometimes, especially when you have a really tight knit team and, and from what I'm told, this is a really tight knit group of Wildcats going on the road is great because you bring your 58 guys and your, and your support staff and, um, and, and everybody's close. And, and, and all you do when you get there is, is think football and talk football. You know, you take in maybe a teeny bit of, of the city, but um, for Linfield, if they do go to Widener and they stay in Philadelphia uh, on their way to play the game in, in Chester, um, it, it'll, be a, it'll be a great trip and it'll be one where they get to focus and then they get to play in a cool stadium. I, I really like... Widener, you know, this time of year is not as not as nice as when it's in like October and you can see the leaves, but it's surrounded on three sides by kind of a rock formation, and then you have um, concrete stick grandstand. You know, it's nothing fancy, and certainly it's it doesn't live up to the, you know, the the well built brand new press box type of places that that we love to go now, or the or the Cathedral, which is a perfectly crafted facility for a great D three program. But um, but I think it'll be a cool trip for Linfield and. I think for for Widener, it's an opportunity to to knock off a program with a big name, and I think for for either one of those teams, it's a chance to advance and play either um, either Wartburg or Whitewater, and so that that side of the bracket now is so much more exciting just by having that one result go go away. We didn't think it was going to go. Yep, completely different look now to that uh, that bracket two or that bottom left hand bracket. Moving on uh, with the game balls, I'm going to give mine to Whitewater linebacker Justin Dishler. Uh, He had 13 tackles Saturday in the Warhawks' 38-14 win over Wabash, as well as a a pair of forced fumbles. No tackles for loss, but uh, just in the first quarter alone, he had two tackles for no gain and another uh, after just a one-yard pickup. So one of those forced fumbles comes when Wabash is driven to the Whitewater 12-yard line, and the other came deep in Wabash territory and set up a uh, quick two-play drive for a, a Warhawks touchdown. Obviously, we'll talk about another uh, defensive player for Whitewater later, but Dishler was first-team all-conference at linebacker, and uh, Keithy kind of looks like another in the great tradition of Warhawks at the linebacker position. Yeah, they really have some have had some great linebackers over the years. If For me, I, I tend to minimize Mount Union accomplishments because there's almost nothing the Purple Raiders can do anymore that hasn't been done. 
have grown numb to their big days and their big wins. But in this case, Kevin Burke passing for a career-best six touchdowns on a 30-for-41, 403-yard day gets my game ball. Burke is the total package given his ability to throw, to run, to throw on the run, to lead, and to, uh, to play with grit. Now, I don't know if this was necessarily his best game, but Mount Union put up 703 yards today on a regional rival that knows it well. W&J scrimmages the Purple Raiders every August, and President's coach Mike Sirianni is from the Mount Union family tree. And, and that's why I thought personally it would be a better game. You know, still a Mount Union win by, by a considerable margin, but one where W&J scored a bit and wasn't phased by the aura of playing at Mount Union and, and had seen everything Mount Union runs. But the Purple Raiders aren't about deception, really. They're about execution and about waves of depth. They're now rotating three starting quality running backs and five top-notch wide receivers. But no part of the team is more consistently good than Burke, except maybe his offensive line. We've already talked a little bit about the Linfield, Mary Harden, Baylor game. Uh, just to set the scene for those of you who are uh, hearing about it for the first time, uh, basically Linfield sealed this game when Jordan Giza, he's the guy who got the D3Football.com play of the week last week, might have made himself a candidate again. He had an interception at the Linfield 9 with four minutes left in the fourth quarter. And as we mentioned before, that's uh, Linfield's first road win in the uh, Division Three playoffs as they defeated uh, Mary Harden, Baylor by the score of 31-28. to My take away from this game you know as i said in our predictions column in around the nation a couple weeks ago this is a team that could go one of two ways linfield could find itself slow to shake off the emotional shock and find itself at a hole versus chapman that it can't get out of or it could put it all together for a magical five-week run and keith I, i think we know pretty well right now which of those two possibilities we're seeing yeah it's definitely got the got the team of destiny vibe go into it right now um besides everything we discussed at the top of the podcast my takeaway is that the second round is just too early to lose either mary harden baylor or linfield from the tournament i realized that the wildcats lost to willamette which people close to the program say was a real wake-up call i realized that's the reason that this matchup was made along with the ncaa's need to get the teams that need flights out of the tournament early <laughs> especially are, that yes <laughs> yeah these are two of d3's model programs not just for their play on the field which is always outstanding but the way they carry themselves you know they're doing things right when privately the opponents rave about the other in defeat you could see nothing but linfield respect from from mary harden baylor fans and 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 folks around that program on our discus comments they they were you know saying that that game probably wasn't even as should have been should have been even um even a bigger margin of victory. And, you know, and behind the scenes, Linfield folks told me they could not have been more impressed by the way Mary Harden Baylor treated them from the support staff right up to the top. So to have UMHB, which will probably end up ranked in the top five or so, even after their loss, have them go out so early, it's such a shame. But, but that's the playoffs for you. You got 10-0 and teams and 11-0 team, teams getting their dose of reality, and only one team gets to end their season with smiles. Yeah, it was, uh, as, as one person mentioned, uh, it seemed like the punter was Mary Harden Baylor's uh, best offensive weapon at points on uh, Saturday. I know there was a one touchdown drive for Mary Harden Baylor in which they, uh, they fake punted twice, uh, and that's what they needed to keep that drive alive. So I, I get what you're saying about the, the margin could have been even, could have been even bigger. Uh, Widener, Christopher Newport. So this is the game you were at. Um, Widener strikes first. They strike quickly. Christopher Newport absorbs the blow and goes up 10-7 on a Rudy Rudolph 39-yard touchdown catch in the second quarter. 
Anthony Davis comes back with a 46-yard grab to set up a Widener score, and then Seth Klein leads the pride on an 11-play, 98-yard drive right before the half. That was really a backbreaker. Uh, Keith, am I? Um, um, I'm obviously. Uh, I'm. I'm working from your notes here. Am I uh, getting this right? Absolutely. So the Pride extends their lead to 24 in the second half before Christopher Newport, which trailed in all eight of its wins this season and rallied last week, uh, according to uh, um, according to Coach Matt Kelchner. So they put two fourth quarter touchdowns on the board and recover an onside kick to at least make it interesting. So, so since you were actually there, your take on this? Yeah, well, my, I guess my 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 takeaway is uh, is that you know we we reached the point where we were nitpicking with uh, with twelve and zero teams, but given that caveat, I, I didn't like how Widener finished the game. They uh, obviously when they when they built that lead, um, they were really playing well. They were playing their their style, which is which is fast paced on offense and aggressive on defense. But I thought they got a little sloppy late in the game defensively, and they won't be able to do that against Linfield, who will keep its foot on the gas the entire game. And uh, keeping keeping their foot on the gas is what Widener likes to do best. I know that it's a resilient group. And, uh, you know, we're not very good passive. And, and we were kind of, okay, we're in the lead. Let's go. You know, we're better when we put the pedal down and we just continue to blitz. And, uh, um, and that's, you know, Bill came down to me shooting and he said, well, I'm going to continue to blitz. I said, that's when we're better. And we are. So we've got to stay aggressive in order for us to, to be competitive. And that's a good football team we just played. You know, you get down to the last 16, these teams are pretty good. So, um, you know, we, we, we knew that they'd be resilient. They proved it last week against a really good Delaware Valley team. And um, uh, so we, we knew, uh, when we kicked that last field goal, I said, don't those points are going to be good for us. As Coach Kelly said, Weiner doesn't just excel with the fast-paced offense, but they're best when they're aggressive on defense. So it'll be real interesting to see if they can get any pressure on Sam Riddle next week. Keith, uh, that doesn't sound like a post-game news conference. What happened there? <laughs> we were all uh, standing outside the locker room, cold as all get out. Um, but uh, but Coach Kelly was, was very accommodating. Um and I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> hey, at least we were allowed to talk to him. What can I say, right? Were you allowed to talk yeah. to players? Could you talk to players? It, it was like a regular season D3 game where if you wanted to grab somebody, they're milling around. You probably could have. I talked to Coach Kelchner, uh, talked to Terry Small. So I, uh, it, was no, it was no problem finding who I needed to find after that game. But it, it definitely wasn't the – it probably didn't mirror, say, the official setup at, at uh, Mary Harden Baylor, for example, which I'm sure was, was running a, a top-notch operation or where you were at John Carroll and uh, Wheaton. Yeah, or maybe any of the other Division Three football playoff games I've ever been to. I just bring these things up because we've had a little trouble trying to get hold of Widener the last couple of weeks. We've wanted to write about them more, and we've, um, you know, we've struggled. Uh, my takeaway from this game, aside from those things that I just cited, um, you know, that's really the Widener I expected to see. Not the sloppy part you talk about at the end, but the the winning handily part up, up until those last uh, couple of scores. You know, Anthony Davis just really hasn't looked back since bursting on the scene his sophomore season, and it's uh, good to see him uh, still going strong here as a senior in the playoffs. Yeah, and he he was very good on Saturday, not just with the with the deep catch, the the forty six yarder that set up the second touchdown, but uh, but they they find all kinds of ways to use him short, uh, quick quick stuff, the hitches where they could get get the ball to him in the open field to let him run and break tackles. Um, uh, Coach Kelly described it I, the, the way he described the he said the he hasn't seen a player who 
frames the ball, I think was the way he said it, when he catches it and brings it in as softly as, uh, as Davis does. And he does. He just you know, snatches it out of the air and, uh, and, and runs for first downs. Um, they re- Widener ran the ball pretty well. And um, they, have a, they have another pretty good uh, receiver on the other side. So they're, they're pretty dynamic offensively. What they want to do is, is basically just you know, continue to run plays. Same thing Warburg does. Same thing Mountain Union does. Not bothering to huddle up but to try to put that pressure on the defense, not let the defense substitute uh, different packages in. I talked to two people at, at the Widener game who were very familiar with the last Widener team that went this deep into the postseason, and um, that was a team that ended up going out in, in a loss at Mount Union 72-17, but was otherwise a, a very, very good Division three team. And uh, the opinion, both of them, given separately, was that um, – that Widener team a couple years ago with Chris Hopp was probably better at quarterback uh, a little bit than Seth Klein, but this Widener team is, is much better on defense, and that aggressive defense um, you know, could play a role in next week's game. Yeah, you mentioned, um, you know, can they get pressure on Sam Riddle? I know one of the things that um, Mary Hard Baylor struggled with the last couple of weeks is depth at cornerback because one of their starting corners uh, was out because of uh, disciplinary issues. What does the uh, how the Widener secondary look to you, and especially you as a guy who knows what the secondary is supposed to look like? Yeah, I, they didn't stand out one way or the other. They they certainly made the, you know a couple of big pass breakups. Uh, there weren't weren't wasn't a big turnover game between Christopher Newport and Widener. The the big I guess the the thing about Christopher Newport besides um, the, they just they give you a lot to think about. They attack all parts of the field, so they're going deep. Then they'll come back right to the middle of the field. Then they'll run option. It, it's it really is a, a well designed offense, and I don't think Christopher Newport necessarily has the the players that you'll see in uh, the, quite the, the talent level that you'll see as we get uh, the next couple rounds deep into this game, but they're probably as well coached as anybody out there. And then Marcus Morass was, he's just so slippery that he's tough on a defense. There were times when Widener would, would, you know, come free, think they have him bottled up in the, in the, in the backfield, and then he would break free and make something happen. So that's, uh, that, that's pretty tough. And I don't think that's quite Sam Riddle style, but, um, but he'll give he'll give Widener defense their fair fair share of problems. Moving on to the Whitewater bracket, uh, Whitewater versus Wabash. Another slow start for Whitewater in a playoff game. Wabash had a tide still at 7-7 deep in the second quarter before Will Meyer hit a short field goal with 66 seconds left in the half to put Whitewater up 10-7. Then Whitewater forces a Wabash fumble, and Jake Kumaro is in the end zone two plays later. Matt Barrett found Justin Howard for a 46-yard score late in the third, and then those two connected again in the fourth quarter, and Brady Gravold added a pick six just for good measure in a 38-14 win. Uh, my takeaway on this game, you know, clearly, even when he's not 100%, Jake Kumaro is a load to handle for uh, Division Three defense, and, um, and and Brady Gravel. I'm not sure what more we can say about the guy that hasn't been said uh, on the site. If you look at our uh, Saturday ra- uh, roundup, you can see just the uh, the list of uh, various uh, interception accolades or uh, totals that he's had over the last season plus. So with Kumaro back, uh, you know Justin Howard, who finished with three TDs on Saturday, I think is going to be even more effective because Kumaro is going to draw some of the defense's focus away from him. And Barrett and Howard have had so much time to work together as the uh, primary receiver and the quarterback combination that uh, they're going to be uh, much better now than they would have been if Kumaro had been dominating the uh, receiving game for the entire season. 
Well, I, I think Gravehold is going to go down as one of the great DBs in, in Division Three history. Um, and that's a note to selves when we do our all-decade team of the 20-teens. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll have to come back to this. Um, you know, the takeaway here is to look, look at Whitewater results. Look at them backwards. By that, I mean the conventional wisdom is against Wabash, they only led 10-7 at the half. Okay, but Wabash's touchdown came on a punt return. The, War, the Warhawks' defense hadn't given up a score. And the only other Little Giants touchdown came with about two and a half minutes left in the game. So, you know, Wabash, a prolific offense most of the season, gained only 234 yards at 3.7 per play. So regardless of whether Whitewater is having a big day running the ball or if Barron is hitting Howard and Kumaro in the passing game like he was on Saturday, their defense is a constant. But that defense will get a big test next week against that Temple offense of Wartburg. And Warburg advanced uh, against St. John's. They were down 10-7 uh, before they went on a six-play 61-yard drive and then a seven-play 84-yard drive to take the lead and then seal the game in defeating St. John's 21-10. After a scoreless first half, Logan Schrader and the Warburg offense began clicking in the second half with an 82-yard touchdown drive to get on the board first midway through the third quarter. So aside from those three drives, the Johnnies had done a good job uh, bottling Warburg up, holding them to 105 yards on 43 plays, but they just couldn't get off the field defense on those key drives. St. John's had a chance to stay in the game in the fourth quarter, but Nick Martin was strip-sacked at the Warburg 12-yard line, and Warburg drove the other way for a score. Um, you know, my takeaway from this game, first of all, big time ups to St. John's for staying in the game after Sam Sura got injured. Uh, Sura separated his shoulder in the first half, only had a handful of carries. Uh, wide receiver Josh Bungham had gotten some reps at running back when the passing game wasn't working well earlier in the season, and that was fortuitous because they really needed him on Saturday. But in the end, yeah, Logan Schrader is really good at quarterback for Warburg, especially with his legs, and the 56-yard uh, touchdown run he went on to seal the game is just another example of how he can hurt you. Warburg showed me it can win ugly. They had a 87 passing yards on Saturday and scored 21 points, which is 10 below their previous low and well below their season average of 44.5 coming in. Give credit to the St. John's defense, but also credit to the Wartburg defense. The Knights are probably as battle-tested as they come at this point, having, be having beaten four MIAC teams and one from the WIAC in addition to their full Iowa Conference slate. They got a tough draw in the playoffs, but with Whitewater ahead, they should be thankful for games like this one against St. John's and, and yeah, I guess not so much last week's, but games like this one where, uh, where they're not high scoring and they're not pretty, but they still count as W's. Yeah, so Warburg goes to Whitewater next week. Uh, you know, Warburg and Whitewater have met in the playoffs before. It was a pretty epic battle. Warburg uh, did uh, more than acquit itself well in that game. Warburg came in uh, much less highly heralded. They didn't have, uh, you know, they if I remember correctly, they didn't have uh, home games leading up to that. Uh, they had to go and uh, win it in the last minute at Monmouth that year. If I'm totally making that up, I apologize to both Warburg and Monmouth. But point being, um, you know, since about maybe the second or third week of the season, Keith, this is the uh, this is the game that it seems the entire West region has been pointing towards, right? It was uh, once Warburg uh, dispatched with Bethel pretty handily, and uh, Whitewater, uh, you know, reasserted that it was uh, it was still Whitewater. Uh, this is the game we've uh, we've been waiting for, and it'll be interesting to see how uh, things develop. Well, it's, it's certainly, you know, we can't forget that Linfield is still alive as a West Region team, just in a, in a different part of uh, the, the tournament right now. Um, but yeah, th this game, I guess we've, we've been kind of waiting on it for for a while. And uh, obviously the Mayak team always has a, uh, 
a say in, in how things fall in, in the playoffs. And so for Wartburg to go through two of them, I think bodes really well for them matching up with, uh, with, with the strength and, and toughness of, uh, of a team like Whitewater. Now, the, the thing that is, is interesting to me nationally is that I don't think people, maybe we, maybe we just don't know that much about Wartburg or we just haven't spent that much time talking about them because, you know, they, they occasionally they would, they were winning games this season uh, going away. You know, they had that 81 point outing in the last week of the season. Um, so there, there was maybe not a whole lot of, lot of drama surrounding them and we didn't spend a lot of time talking about them. Their, their really big victory was Bethel back in week one. And then, uh, and then they you know had the big playoff win last week against St. Thomas. So I, I don't know if, even though they 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 ranked where they belong in the poll, I, I just feel like we we're just assuming that it's that it's you know Warburg's season is going to end at Whitewater, and I think that's probably the, the safe bet. But you uh, this could be a really good game. It'll be interesting, you know. Um, Warburg's very strong up front, both offensive line and defensive line. Uh, you know, as you as you mentioned, what they uh, threw for what eighty seven yards on Saturday, and and relied on the run game of their defense to carry them. You know, the uh, trying to rely on your run game going up against Whitewater is not always a uh, a particularly sure bet. And, and that's why I think it was so important for them to to be able to win ugly against St. St. John's on Saturday. Um, St. John's obviously had the issues of its own with losing their basically their offense, their their star player and Sam Sura, and uh, and so they kind of had to go ugly as well and win with defense and field position and play solid special teams. And and sometimes it's okay to win those games, especially if you're you you got to go through Whitewater at some point because white we all know um, it gets cold. Whitewater wants to pound the rock. They they want to line up, and uh, they're not going to try to trick you, be be too fancy with you. They're just going to run right through you. Yeah, I, I think if there's one weak spot for Warburg that's uh, going to be an issue as we get later and later in the season, uh, it's the kicking game. Um, you know, saw them miss easy field goals uh, when I saw them earlier in the season. You know, they had another field goal missed against St. John's on Saturday, and and as uh, the, as you get to this point in the season, you just can't afford to be giving away points like that. So if, if that comes, if it comes down to a kick, um, you know, even though, uh, um, you know, Whitewater and uh, Josh Meyer are not the most experienced Whitewater kicking crew over the past few years, uh, I still think Whitewater has a significant edge there. You know, speaking of the kicking game, I thought it was odd that the wind was a factor today at the Hobart game. It was a factor at Mountain Union. It was a factor at, at Mary Harden Baylor, but not at the games we were at, at Widener or John Carroll. And if you were to draw a triangle between like Hobart, Mountain Union, and uh, and Mary Harden Baylor, I think Widener and John Carroll might end up in that triangle somewhere. Maybe not, but uh, but it's strange that there, you know, in Texas there was wind was an issue. There were punts, you know, going straight up in the air at the Mountain Union game, and uh, and then there were just some games where wind was not a factor. Yeah, and it was not a factor as you mentioned uh, where I was at the John Carroll Wheaton game. So all the kicking uh, things that happened there, wind was not the thing. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, let's talk about the uh, Mount Union bracket. So Mount Union, W&J. Uh, W&J looks good here for about a quarter. Lines up for a short field goal down 7 nothing. Misses it wide left, maybe a little short. And Mount Union was more or less off to the races from there. Uh, you know, not to go whole play-by-play, uh, play, basically just to say 67 nothing is the highest margin of victory in a Division Three playoff game. Previously, 66 nothing is, Keith, I know you well know because we called that game. Right, and we were on that exact.
exact same field. It was Mount Union and Bridgewater in 03, the, the famous storyline behind that one. And this is actually going to tie into what we talk about with, with W&J today. The, the famous storyline is that Bridgewater um, wanted to match up with, the, with its cornerbacks and just let them play man-to-man and then try to create pressure on, uh, on the Mount Union quarterback, and, uh, which is, is probably a smart way to, to play, except if, you're, if your corners don't have a good day, you, you end up with a 66-0. Yeah, and as far as a takeaway, I'm not sure what more there is to say than I just mentioned in this summary. Mountain Union comes up, uh, comes out in an up-tempo offense, methodically puts an early touchdown on the board. It really wasn't until the second quarter that they put on the afterburners. And that includes a possession on which W&J had held Mount to a field goal, but because of a penalty, Mountain Union got a new set of downs and made it 24-0 instead of 20-0. No shock, Mountain Union is damn good. Yeah, they led 7-0 after the first and 45-0 at the half. So for you math whizzes listening, that's a 38-point second quarter. W&J seemed to have a good plan against Purple Raiders, but when the game got away from them in the second, the uh, the presidents were really hurt by not being able to get any pressure on Kevin Burke. They they preferred to play two high safeties, and they, they weren't blitzing to create pressure, which meant Burke had a lot of, lot of open receivers crossing over the middle, and he just stood in the pocket. Nobody was coming near him, and he picked the WNJ defense apart. He hit all four of his, his big receivers for touchdown passes and hit them in every imaginable, imaginable way. One, one of the passes was a rainbow to, to Roman Namdar. Um, some of the other ones were short passes to, to Tar Scott, to Luke Beecham, and to Sherman Wilkinson. Um, three of the touchdowns also came in the final four minutes of the second quarter, and I think that was the point where, where you know, it turned— W&J started to get snowed under a little bit. They started to realize, all right, you know, we don't have a chance here. And, and I, don't know if, I don't know if you can say their effort went down, but you could definitely see that, um, that once Mountain Union got rolling, um, it, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was a problem. And I think to keep that from happening for the next couple teams that play Mountain Union, if, if there are a couple, and, and, and the one they play this coming week it at least has a blueprint on, on how to try to do this, is uh, you have to get Burke a little bit uncomfortable, at least move him off his, his spot a little bit, uh, create some big plays for your defense early, because once the machine gets rolling, there, there's no stopping. That other game in that bracket between John Carroll and Wheaton, that's where I was on Saturday. I saw some great throws and some great catches uh, between Mark Myers and his receivers, Marshall Howell and Aramis Greenwood, and uh, tight end Zach Strippy. Tommy Michaels with a good amount of yardage out of the backfield. But the game was definitely played close and low scoring, and that was ideal for Wheaton to try to stay in the game. Uh, here's Mark Myers talking about the Wheaton defense. They they came out, and we weren't expecting They came out in cover, too, and... Uh, we really weren't expecting that from them. So, I mean, most teams we play are, are quarters or, uh, I mean, really not cover two. So uh, we definitely had to make some adjustments at halftime, and we came out um, strong first drive, uh, came down with a score. Uh, second drive, uh, we, we moved the ball and, and continued to play as hard as we could. And, uh, I mean, it showed at the end of the game. That John Carroll drive Myers talks about in the third quarter takes just four plays before Myers uh, finds Strippy in the corner of the end zone for six. Uh, Wheaton had success in controlling the clock and keeping the ball out of John Carroll's hands, but uh, they had their first extra point blocked, and so then they passed up the PAT the second time around in order to try to tie the game in the third quarter with a two-point conversion. Uh, That failed as well. 
Whedon passes up a 32-yard field goal attempt on fourth and one with three minutes left in the game when a field goal would have put them up by one and uh, then uh, couldn't convert on the first down. Uh, then they had two shots on a field goal to take the lead with 107 left. Uh, the 46-yard attempt was blocked, and after an offsides penalty against John Carroll, Wheaton had another shot and missed wide left from 41. Uh, and uh, John Carroll was able to run out the clock and win 14-12. So John Carroll might take away. Obviously, they remain strong on defense as well as on offense. Uh, the defensive line keeps uh, Wheaton's run game in check, especially Johnny Peltz, who kept the ball a lot on draws but didn't have a lot of success. That's the Wheaton quarterback. Uh, John Carroll left some points on the board. Um, they had a field goal blocked in the fourth quarter, uh, which could have made it, uh, uh, you know, could have put them up by more than uh, two points and forced Wheaton to drive for the end zone. And they certainly can't afford to do that at Mountain Union next week. But uh, the defensive line has been a, a strong point for them. And Keith, you were just talking a few minutes ago about, um, you know, keeping uh, keeping Burke uncomfortable in the pocket and putting pressure on him. Yeah, and this also ties in with, with the point I made about Warburg, too. Is, is and I feel like I've mentioned this previously about John Carroll, but it's important to note again that that you know this team is not just propped up on the back of, of a Division I transfer quarterback. Myers is certainly a big reason why they're in the Final Eight, but John Carroll's developed that old Cleveland toughness. They're disruptive up front. They run the ball well with Michaels. And they protect they protect their quarterback, and they were they were very much in that Mountain Union game. So um, this this Wheaton game is pr- probably a good test, uh, you know, a, more, a better test than than center was for certain. Uh, as far as again having to win ugly, having to to you know sometimes um, you know punt the ball away and play defense and 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 hang in there and, and try to win some field position. And uh, you're not you know not every game. And, and John Carroll was was annihilating people for much of the season not people but 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 football teams mostly um <laughs> yes that and uh copy editor humor right there right right sorry <laughs> um so so this is going to be the the blue streaks third trip to alliance in their past 15 games uh they keep running into mountain union and as much as this is totally true, and it's a I guess it's a valid complaint, but it's one I, I kind of get tired of hearing sometimes because anybody that has to beat five you know quality teams to get to Salem uh, or four to get to Salem and one in Salem certainly earns it. But Mountain Union doesn't often face a challenge of this caliber. I'm picking my words very carefully. Um, doesn't often face a challenge of this caliber in the quarterfinals. John Carroll is a team that can beat Mountain Union. And it's hard to believe those words are even coming out of my mouth when they've won 66-3 and 67-0 in the first two rounds. But you go back to that Week 11 game, Mountain Union got ahead early, and John Carroll really probably safe to say they controlled the the second half of that game, um, had got down to the seven-yard line, and and time ran out on them. But it was was, – Definitely kind of a, a toe-to-toe battle, and we'll see uh, how it looks this week. Yeah, uh, and John Carroll is definitely looking forward to a rematch. Here's what uh, Coach Tom Arth had to say after the game on Saturday. You know, we, we grew so much as a group, as a team, as a program um, last year. Um, you know, all these guys you know, were significant contributors last year for us um, in, our, in, our, in our playoff year. And, you know, we learned a lot from that. We learned a lot from that experience. Um, and, you know, this year, you know, there, there, there was a sense that that's, you know, that it was just the, the, way, it, the way it was going to be. We were going to get back to the playoffs and we were going to do something. We were going make to some, make some noise when we got into it. And, you know, these guys, they have incredible belief. And, um, 
you know, I, I just think that, you know, playing in games like this, we've been in, we've been in a, in a few of them now um, this year, and you know, th there's nothing better for you. There's nothing better for your program. There's nothing better for these guys to know that when the game's on the line, that we have people on the field that are going to make the play to win it. And you know, that's uh, that's it, it provides so much confidence to us, and um, just continues to build momentum. Um, for our football program, and you know, we just we, we can't wait to get back at it next Saturday. All right, Keith, all that's fine and dandy, right? Uh, you know, John Carroll certainly gave Mountain Union everything it could handle uh, in its previous meeting, um, and they're fired up to play them again. But just time and time again in the playoffs, uh, when the team gets the rematch against Mountain Union, Mountain Union is the team that makes the better adjustments, and almost always they have a, a much uh, easier time of it the second time around than they did in the first meeting. Well, that's been the the case over over time, certainly. Um, but those were all Larry Karras teams, and and this is a um, this is a Vince Karras team. You know, Vince was, was defensive coordinator for a lot of those teams, but it's it's a different team and, and a different year, and uh, certainly, you know, I think right up there with with some of the great Mountain Union teams, or has the potential to be right up there if if they're able to finish this thing off. But they don't have an easy road, you know, for the next three weeks. You'll 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 see John Carroll, which we already know, uh, can go to the wire with them. You see Wesley or Hobart, um, and then you know you see whoever comes out of the other side of that bracket. So for for Mountain Union to finish the job, they are going to have to turn in those efforts. Where the second time they see uh, John Carroll, they they do what they do what they do only much better. Moving on to the uh, Wesley bracket, uh, Wesley versus MIT was all Wesley all the time. Wolverines scored three times in 88 seconds as Bryce Shade capped a 70-yard uh, drive with a touchdown run. Leroy, Leroy Cheatham returned an interception, 42 yards for a score, and then Andre Connolly returned a block punt, 35 yards for a touchdown. And, you know, there's not much else to say here, Keith. Uh, Wesley's the only team that got a second first-round game, and it'll be interesting to see next week when uh, Wesley faces an actual playoff-quality team. This was exactly what we expected, and my only concern is if Wesley will be able to turn it back on next week to beat Hobart or if they, if they have to play the Mountain Union John Carroll winner after that. You know, it, it makes the decision to play that game against FCS Charlotte back in week 11 look pretty smart because otherwise the team will have gone like seven or eight weeks without having to dig deep in a close game. That loss might have kept their heads from getting too big on what more and more is looking like a Wesley team that has as good a chance as any to break through to Salem. And that loss didn't cost them either. It was an out-of-division loss. Clearly the committee didn't take any heed to it whatsoever, and they still gave them a, a first-round, uh, a, a number one seed and, and really two first-round games. So, yeah, that, that decision definitely worked out for them. Other game in that bracket uh, between Hobart and Johns Hopkins. Hobart sweats out another tight game in the fourth quarter. It's fourth consecutive game of that type and had its back against the wall before statesman linebacker Jacob Stanley sealed the win with an interception at his own two-yard line with under 10 seconds to go. Hobart looked good early on, intercepting uh, Johns Hopkins quarterback Braden Anderson in the first play from scrimmage, setting up an early field goal by Sean Kirsch, then taking a 10-0 lead after an 80-yard drive. Uh, Hobart gave out uh, gave up TD drives in the second and third quarter uh, and then trailed 21-16, but came back with a touchdown and a two-point conversion with a buck 26 to go to go up 24-21. So Stanley's interception comes one play after Hopkins has that touchdown taken off the board with that offensive pass interference call. 
Uh, my takeaway, you know, obviously after picking against Hobart in back-to-back weeks and looking good for it in the fourth quarter up until the closing moments both time, I have to tip my hat to the Statesman. I just don't have a makeup call to give you guys against Wesley because Wesley. Uh, but Hobart has gotten the plays when it needed them the last couple weeks, including uh, key two-point conversions in the final minutes in consecutive weeks. It's a nice run for Hobart. Second trip to the quarterfinals in three seasons. This game was what we expected, a down-to-the-wire, either-team-could-win type of battle between two very similar programs. Hobart is now graduating from, man, this team plays a lot of close games, to, man, this team sure knows how to win close games. That's four straight now by one score, and in this one, the the Statesman trailed for much of the fourth quarter, rallied to take the lead, then gave up the game-winning touchdown, except it was a pick play, and the officials were on top of it. So then the game ended with Stanley's interception uh, on the two-yard line. The big key in this one, the Statesman had four takeaways and no giveaways, and they deserve to enjoy this win before going to play with house money at Wesley. So Hobart versus Wesley, uh, and obviously uh, a few years ago, this was a really tight game. We've spoken a couple times uh, on this uh, podcast about this being maybe the best Wesley team we've seen, and and Hobart, I still have to think is maybe not necessarily as good as they were a couple of years ago when they made the quarterfinals because they were, you know, simply much more dominant over the course of that entire season. Um, you know, does is there what's this what's the scenario in which Hobart has a chance against Wesley? Well, they would probably have to control the line of scrimmage and uh, and and run the ball um, as well as they have, and um, kind of keep it to, keep it close early, keep it an ugly ugly game, kind of like the game they played against Ithaca uh, would be a good example. Um, but but Hobart's shown. I mean, you look on Saturday; they they've shown some some resiliency. I think the big thing too is is uh, Hobart is. Um, a little young in the defensive backfield, and so, you know, if they get if they connect on the big plays early, and you, we've seen this week after week with Wesley where they hit a big play to, to Kadosu early, or this week it was Bryce Shade, but Callahan gets going, and uh, and you know then he ends up like twenty one or twenty six passing or something like that, and you know Wesley's way out in front early. It, Hobart needs to keep it from being that kind of game early, and so whatever they have to do to uh, to help their defensive backfield, whether it's get some pressure. Uh, on Callahan or to, to get a score early to sort of take the pressure off them. They're going to be on the road. They're going to be the, the team that's not expected to win. And so when you go in with that mentality, it's good if things start going for you because then, you know, uh, you're, you're the team that's playing loose and, and you have nothing to lose. But if it starts going bad, those things can snowball in a hurry. Yeah, I, I mean, at the very least, um, you know, Wesley's going to have to come out and play in the second half, which they really haven't had to do the last couple of weeks. Uh, they've been able to put the game completely on cruise control after coming out of the locker room for halftime. I would go one step further and say that this week, at least, not maybe not as much against Hampton City, but they, I think you have to, they have to make an effort to not run the score up. They, you know, they were up forty nine nothing at the half, and. Um, you know, end up being a 59 nothing final in that one, and kind of like that that College of Faith game, Wesley kind of went out of its way to not to not make it an embarrassing final. And I know we well, you know Coach Drass well, and, and Chip Knapp and all the guys up there. I know that's not their they're not in the business of of trying to embarrass um, regular D3 teams, but they are now. They have risen to the level where they're so good, uh, like like Mountain Union, like some other teams across the country where. Um, they they get out in front of, of of teams sometimes sometimes even pretty good teams like a Hampton Sydney that was an eight win team this season um, you know you get out in front 
uh, and things start going your way and it starts rolling and, and you, you beat a pretty good team pretty badly. So it's, it's good to see that um, MIT got its splash of publicity in the first round of the playoffs. They got to enjoy what it's like to win a postseason game going up to Huston and winning in overtime. And, and, and that was their peak. And for Hobart now, was this win against Johns Hopkins their peak or are they going to be able to give Wesley a push? Uh, Hampton Sydney won just seven games. I just have to throw that out there, man. You know what's funny? I knew that when I said it because I know why they didn't win the eighth game. Do you? But I, it was awkward to try to backtrack it. But now that we've brought it up, uh, I just have to. I had to get the correction in before we get too far away. Uh, let's move on to the flash drive. Where we uh, speaking of corrections? Let's talk about our uh, picks and triple take. For example, we all picked Johns Hopkins, and uh, we all thought Mount Union would maybe not set a record for biggest margin of victory, and we were all pretty much wrong there. But we did. Uh, we did have some bright spots. Yeah, well, there's some some scores that we hit pretty close, and honestly, there are some scores that we had the wrong team winning. But we were pretty close on, and those those probably would be the Hopkins pick. I thought we were all in the in the ballpark on uh, on uh, on Linfield too. But the best pick of yours, Pat, was probably Whitewater thirty eight, Wabash fourteen. Yeah, that probably uh, matches right up. And you were uh, you were right there with uh, Widener beating Christopher Newport. You had it thirty eight twenty eight, and the final was thirty seven twenty seven. And then we got to give a shout out to Tips, who had 38-34, Mary Harden-Baylor. The final was actually 31-28, but he almost nailed the margin of victory. And he, it was the right type of game um, to pick, you know, some, some, some scoring involved in that one. So we'll, we'll tip the hat to Tips on that one. Well, yeah, and he picked Linfield, which uh, neither of the other uh, of us did. He's actually, of course, got the victor correct there. Oh, yeah, minor detail. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Gowardi Trophy. Uh, so, you know, we talked uh, briefly that we, uh, on last week's podcast, haven't gotten a sneak peek at the uh, finalists. Thought it was a pretty good crew. So what's it going to take for Kevin Burke not to win it again? And my only thought is him not winning on, you know, his team not winning on Saturday, but uh, this upcoming Saturday. But I think most of the ballots will probably even be in by then. Yeah, and, and if we're judging him off his most recent game, he clearly made a statement i don't think he was playing any different than he plays on any normal week but you know to have a six touchdown pass game to uh to 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 you know 30 or 41 whatever 403 yards or or whatever the exact number was to to go out and basically do whatever you want to do uh against a, a fairly decent division 3 team uh that, if that's your last statement that's the last thing the voters see um you know some of the guys that are, that are on the ballot have been in the clubhouse you know the only other guy who made, I guess, a similar impression on Saturday is probably uh, Brady Gravehold. We know, you know, Logan Trader's on the list as well, the Wartburg quarterback, and he had the big run. So, you know, I like to hold my ballot as long as possible um, because of the playoffs are still going on. And, and, you know, some years there aren't too many guys who are active in the playoffs who are candidates, but this year there are. And so you, you, you want to get give those guys as much chance as possible to, to show you, um, you know, what, the, what type of player they are before you cast that ballot. To answer the actual question, though, what would it take for Burke to not win it again? Yeah, I mean, I don't. It, 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 people wanting to vote for variety's sake, like I, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to say it's a it's a shoe in, but you, you come off a game like you just played, um, a season like he's having, it's going to be awful tough. So, Pat, I wanted to um, say thanks to Brendan Curran and uh, Dave from Widener 
who uh, hosted me for a few minutes uh, after the uh, after the game on Saturday. It was kind of cool because they had the um, somebody had a phone wired up to a speaker, so we we're watching about the last ten minutes of the uh, the Mary Harden Baylor Linfield game, and so everybody there is rooting for Linfield. You know, not just for sentimental reasons, but because Widener wants to host a game uh, this coming week. And so it was actually kind of a cool atmosphere. And it's just one of those weird things that you only run into when you go out to games. And in some weeks, it's beneficial for you and I to, to be at home base and to just try to pop in a, a, on as many videos as, as we can and watch different games. But it's also great when we get a chance to go on site. Um, I always enjoy feeling welcomed when we travel and, and, you know, when people stop and say, Hey, we listen to the podcast. We love triple take. We love the around the nation columns. It, it really does matter and make a difference because I know we wouldn't spend all the time we do say traveling on Saturdays or staying up late on, on Saturdays or Sundays to, to do a podcast when we could be, you know, resting up for work or doing something with our families. But knowing that people out there, care and listen to it, I think is, um, is a really big deal. And on, on top of that as well, I'd like to say thanks to a, f- a few folks behind the scenes who uh, helped fill me in on the games we weren't at because, you know, all eight games are running basically simultaneously on Saturday. Um, uh, you know who you are. So uh, we always appreciate um, all the help you give us for the podcast. It, it um, Again, the whole the whole reason is because people care about it, and because there's, we're we're all spread across the country, and we can't pick up pick up the TV and turn the game on. Um, but we but we have that same voracious appetite for information about the teams across the country, especially in the playoffs when you know you're you you got an Oregon team maybe having to go to, to Pennsylvania. Revisiting a story that we uh, talked about and wrote about earlier in the season. Uh, Mikey Weinstein, that's Mighty Mikey, uh, the uh, young man Merchant Marine adopted, so to speak, who has uh, brain and spinal cancer. He turns nine on Monday, and that's uh, you know obviously a, a milestone for a kid who was uh, diagnosed with this cancer back in 2008 and has been uh, battling through it. Uh, a really uh, poignant story written by uh, Ryan Tipson around the nation earlier in the season. Uh, would definitely recommend you go back and read it, and I'll put a link in the uh, uh, on the podcast player page here for uh, you guys to take a a look at and get a reminder about it because um you know this is a kid who just lives for everything that he uh, can get for a uh, merchant from uh, for and from merchant marine football and a, and a really special story and uh, happy birthday mikey appreciate that uh, congratulations and continued best wishes um and uh, let's see now we're just down to the part where we talk about uh, nuts and bolts and things that are on the schedule so uh, SIDs. Uh, the deadline for all region nominations was uh, last night, Sunday night at 8 p.m. Uh, if you didn't nominate your guys, uh, and you will probably be getting an email from your conference office because we send an email out to all the conferences asking them to cross-check against their all-conference teams because we don't want you to miss out. So today is absolute last day. We're going to start voting on Tuesday morning, and at that point, it's uh, if not too late, it's un, uh, it's really unfeasible to add somebody. We want to get everybody nominated, so so don't miss out on that because uh, that's necessary. Uh, we talked about Gallardi Trophy uh, voting just a few moments ago. Uh, for van- fans participating in the fan vote, uh, your uh, ballots are due by 
1 p.m. Eastern Time on December 8th. So you still have another week to vote. Find all the devices that you can to vote on, on which to vote at d3football.com and cast your ballot, uh, whether it's from your iPod or your Xbox or your uh, phone or your sister's phone or your roommate's laptop. You get the you get the drill. Uh, you can vote once from each of those that you can find. Um, I was wondering how long you were going to go with that. <laughs> your cousin's former roommate's um, iPod Nano. No, I don't, I don't. Those things don't connect to the internet that I know. How about your um, you, uh, uh, your refrigerator? If you have a refrigerator that can connect to the internet, you can vote from there. It's the Internet of Things. Is that a real thing? That's a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, refrigerator will connect to the internet, and it'll tell you. Uh, it'll create your shopping list for you, and it may actually even send your shopping list to the store and have it delivered for you. It's going to be awesome. Uh, this is what the world is coming to, and we're all going to have uh, six-part IP addresses instead of four-part IP addresses. Because when your toaster starts to talk to your phone and your uh, you know, your light bulbs talk to the thermostat to get turned off, yeah, okay. Getting too geeky that, here. That is a legendary tangent right there. It's a it's a it's a cosecant, in fact. Um yeah. Uh we'll have a lot of road to Salem features. Keith, I, I suspect we probably haven't assigned them out yet, but uh we can look for those over the course of the week. You have any storylines that we're really looking at? Well, you suspect correctly, one. Um two, we you know, try to strategically think about, okay, who may not be around uh, next week. And we already did the, the Linfield story. So we definitely got to do, uh, do the Whitewater and the Wartburg bracket. I feel like, like I said earlier in the podcast, um, we may not be giving Wartburg quite their, their, their just due yet. Um, Ryan Tips wrote, wrote about Widener a couple weeks ago. So I, I think we're good there. On the other side, it's probably time to hit uh, Wesley and Mount Union, we did John Carroll last week, and and Hobart we did last week. So probably looking for Wartburg, Whitewater, Wesley, Mount Union features. So look for those coming to a d3football.com webpage near you. Uh, for Keith McMillan, I'm Pat Coleman. That's the Around the Nation podcast. And uh, stay tuned. we got lots of great coverage yet here in these final three weeks of the uh, 2014 Division Three football season. <laughs>